Welcome to Noble Discussions, Episode 1, Emerging Fraud Threats. Our host, Ian Mitchell, will introduce Noble Discussions to help unite financial crimes professionals and to protect the vulnerable. Today, we have invited Frank McKenna, the Chief Fraud Strategist at Point Predictive and creator of Frank on Fraud, to join our show. Frank and Ian will discuss the threats and opportunities on the horizon in the world of financial crimes. Thank you for joining us, and enjoy listening. So Frank, thanks for spending time with me outside. It's cool that um, folks who know you this well uh, on the fraud side actually get to know you, I think, in a different aspect of your life. And um, so now in kind of this interview segment, um, I'd love to start out by asking you kind of an anchor question for a lot mm-hmm. of the things we're going to do through The Noble is, um, why do you do what you do? Why, why are you in this daily slog of fighting fraud? I mean, what, what, what brought you here and why do you keep doing it? Yeah, so I think I, I love fraud because, number one, it's fun. It's a job where I go to work every day and I get to do something really fun. And that's stopping bad guys. Um, I think I also do it because there I can help people. So I don't want people to steal from my family. I don't want them to steal from my friends. I don't want them to steal from my company. And I don't want them to steal from my customers. Mm. So I get a lot of enjoyment out of stopping fraudsters from stealing from anybody I know or anybody that I work with. So that gives me a lot of enjoyment. So, you know, how did I get here? Um, I started off now 30 years ago. This is going to be my 30th year in fraud prevention. And I got into fraud prevention um, primarily because I was a victim of fraud. Um, I when I graduated really. from college, oh. um, I got my very first apartment. And it was in Lafayette, California. And when I um, got the apartment, the landlady um, instructed me to write the checks directly to her, which this was my first apartment. I, I had no idea. Um, but when I finally moved from that apartment and tried to get my deposit back, she wouldn't give me my, de- my deposit back. So we started investigating a little bit, and I, it turned out she didn't own the apartment complex, that she was basically taking my checks and depositing into her personal account and not telling the company that she worked for that I was living there. Wow. So she ended up getting arrested. I ended up, you know, feeling like it was to become a victim. And that got me started. I mean, I was just pumped to help other people kind of prevent from happening to them what happened to me. Yeah. I find you have a unique perspective on why come work in fraud. Yeah. So my perspective is there's two types of people in the world. There's people that love to do this and people that could care less. And the people that I think I try to appeal to are the people that feel like maybe yourself or myself, who feel like this is the only job you'd ever want to do. Um, because I think people are naturally going to gravitate towards the aspects of fraud, which is putting the puzzle pieces together, so the complex nature of it. Yeah. Um, secondly is the helping the victims. People are, That's going to appeal to a lot of people. And thirdly... It's a growing profession. So if I look back 30 years when I started, there were hardly any other, any jobs in fraud. So I was lucky to get the one that I had. But today, if you look at how many fraud analyst positions or investigator positions or consulting positions are out there, there's more than ever. And that's just going to keep increasing. So I truly believe in my heart that this is not only a great job, but it's one that's growing, that if you start in it, you're going to be set for your career because you're going to love your job 
You're not going to be selling anything. You're not going to be going to work and looking at the clock. You're going to be doing something you love, and there's a lot of career opportunity. So I love it. I always say that like the most noble profession in banking, you've heard this a bunch of times, is fighting financial crimes and being in fraud. And I, I think you're hitting that. And it's interesting because <clears throat> we're finding the, the, the discipline of fraud and financial crimes it's also increasing in the level of sophistication and like just the amount of technology being used. It's it's far. It's getting even more interesting. You know, it's mm -hmm. less cops and robbers, and then it got to the operations, and now yeah. it's getting highly technical. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of technology in what we do all the time. Also, it's all coming together, and which kind of makes it interesting because you see the people that are graduating from college and the people that are just coming into the workforce, and what they're doing in fraud is so novel and so new, they're taking a totally different approach, which is using machines, using mobile, you know, a thought on how to use mobile. They're bringing all of these perspectives and they're making it far more interesting than we did, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So to me, like you said, this is getting more complex, more involved, more technological, but at the same time, there's still that gut, human level aspect to it where you, have the people, even though we create all this technology, it's still people stopping the fraud. It can come. It comes down to the human element, which that. really appeals to me. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people. I mean, we talked about some of the things that folks don't know about you, um, but the you guys, you and Tim Grace, have been pioneers in this <clears throat> level using technology analytics. You've been pioneers in that space. First base point analytics, which yeah. became core logic and now point predictive and. Um, you guys have definitely been pioneers in the world of using uh, advanced analytics and technology yeah. to stop fraud. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think despite the one thing that I've carried through, like the whole career and creating machine learning and creating these models is it really comes down to getting people to trust technology mm. and getting people to kind of balance the use of technology to be able to stop fraud. And it comes down to fundamentally in every organization is somebody has to champion that technology and use of that technology to be able to get it adopted to stop the fraud. So that's where, to me, the biggest part of fraud management isn't necessarily the technology or stopping fraudsters externally. It's about the champion in the organization that's pushing the organization in the right way. I love that. Yeah. I, I just, uh, just side note, um, are you, what do you think of the state of champions and the organizations you deal with? Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of evolution on how you champion this kind of concept and balancing customer experience and revenue and losses, mm -hmm. but just the state of like the champion. Because I think, um, you know, we definitely in the world of financial crimes, we need more champions. I Absolutely. Just, yeah. yeah, the person, champions are the whistleblowers. The champions are the fraud manager you hire that's telling you something that you don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. The champion is, the fraud analyst who you're paying thirty, forty thousand dollars a year that's telling you something mm -hmm. that maybe you want to ignore. And too often those champions in an organization, their voices are suppressed mm -hmm. because maybe they're an insider to the organization, or maybe people in other roles like marketing and sales and other areas where they want to grow the business simply don't want to hear these people. But these people's voices are immensely important to the organization. You have to listen to those people that are maybe telling you something that you don't want to hear and have an open mind because oftentimes they're the ones that are going to help you 
keep your business in, yeah, open and yeah, working. Yeah. I know this is a big part of um, the platform <clears throat> that you know you and I both talk about is is how to justify the expenditure around fraud and investment in people is less even about you know saying no to the fraud events, although you want to protect, but there's also a real reason and upside for saying yes to putting the right controls in place, and that's revenue impacts, growth. I mean, so I think there's, there's the do the right thing, actually. There's mm -hmm. a lot of financial benefit and reward, mm -hmm. as if you know protecting the vulnerable wasn't enough. But if you do the right thing, I think you find this through a lot of the work you guys do, um, there's a lot of upside to, uh, yeah. um, be, I mean, on top of being regulatory compliant, but revenue and, and opportunity. Right. Yeah. Every time you do the right thing, you help a consumer avoid becoming a victim. Yep. Maybe you don't take the loss, but there's a customer in your bank that's going to benefit. Yeah. And they may really appreciate you and stay with you because you helped them, even yeah. though you, there was no financial benefit. A great example of something you brought to me years ago, which is the benefit of stopping a wire fraud. You know, as a bank, the wire fraud liability is oftentimes on the small business or the customer because they were fished and they gave out their details or they instructed you to send the wire to the wrong person. So there's no benefit to the bank to stop that wire transfer. There's no financial benefit. But if you stop that wire transfer because you intervene and you tell the customer, this looks like a phishing attempt. Mm -hmm. We don't want you to send the wire. You can avoid that co consumer from becoming a victim. That consumer may save their life, may save their life savings, mm -hmm. and they're going to be your forever customer. Mm -hmm. Now that is directly something where there was no initial financial benefit, but you reap that financial benefit for years and years with that customer, yeah, yeah. who then tells other customers. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a, it's a effect, a domino effect. When yeah. you do the right thing up front. There's many people that are going to benefit. Yeah, I, we're seeing that a lot more in scams, whether it's <clears throat> business email compromise and the loyalty mm -hmm. of com commercial customers, and and I just think there's more to more to be explored on that with sweetheart scams and all the things that are going right. on that are growing. So I love that point that you made. Yeah. yeah. Moving from kind of like why you do what you do, talk to me about um, the threats that we're seeing. I mean, it's such a changing mm -hmm. landscape. I mean, there was recently just a, a breach announced around Capital One, right? And I guess the AWS and the moving to the cloud. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. It just, it seems like there's constant movement going on. Mm -hmm. I know you, you put a lot in your blog around the threats that you're seeing around automotive and, and mortgage. Mm -hmm. what, what are the threats that, that kind of get you excited to fight back mm -hmm. on? Like, yeah, just. Where's the fraud? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think everybody has a different opinion on this. Yeah. My opinion is, um, the single biggest threat, it's all related to opportunity. Yeah. Opportunities in banking or financial services is where your threats are gonna, your future threats are gonna be. So I place your number one threat is faster payments and all these new payments that are coming out, whether they're Zelle or Venmo or Visa or MasterCard or whatever type of payment you can make is going to be the threats that banks really need to deal with. I think the fraudsters are kind of in their infancy of figuring out how to manipulate the payment systems, mm. how, to, how to manipulate the payment-to-payment -payment transfers and things mm. like that. That's where I think a lot of the threats over the next 12 to 24 months is going to be in that faster payments arena. Mm. I think the second biggest threat is, and this might be a little controversial, but everybody knows about synthetic identity. Mm. But I think the biggest threat that I see with synthetic identity is the fact that a lot of banks and a lot of lenders are fostering synthetic identity and creating a garden of synthetic mm. identity and enabling it to grow. And the reason why I think that is because, um, number one, 
a lot of banks aren't doing anything about it. Because synthetic identity, there's no real victim to confirm, they will oftentimes ignore it because it's hard to stop, it's hard to identify, and they can't, they can't find it. Um, but beyond that, there's also kind of a willful ignorance of it where a lot of the synthetic identity performs. So people that use false social security numbers that apply for loans, maybe their intention is to pay that. Maybe they want to create a new credit file. And banks like those customers because they're new business and they're, mm -hmm. they're motivated customers. But the fact that they're allowing this to happen at all means that it, synthetic identity becomes more popular because it's successful. And you can use a stolen social security number and create a new identity. So I think the biggest threat is that unless banks take a firm stance on that, synthetic is just going to continue to grow. They continue to undermine our whole credit system, our credit bureaus, everything is really going to be impacted by that. And then I think thirdly is a concept that I call breach paralysis. It's banks overwhelming and overwhelming fear of becoming a victim of breach that they start to pull back on fraud strategies and then pour all of their investment purely into cybersecurity and protecting against breaches. So fraud advancements stop while everything goes to breach detection. Mm -hmm. And they stop working with new vendors. They stop working with fraud technology companies because they don't want their data anywhere. And they try to go in-house and do everything, and they simply can't compete. So I think the, the, the whole concept of so us becoming victims of breach paralysis is a pretty big threat. So I understand. So, so the thought on that last one is interesting, is that you think that maybe some of the openness for <clears throat> institutions to partner with third parties and such, because yeah. they have to transfer potentially PII or other yeah. types of information, the appetite kind of uh, lessens, yeah. and appetite. they get concerned about. Uh, interesting. I, I, that's an lessons, interesting perspective. You get yeah. less. You get a less yeah. advancement yeah. in fraud technology because if you're not supporting those startup new companies that. You know, you don't want to send them data or don't want or just want to maintain everything in-house. You're not going to have advancements. So we're going to have a, a lack of technology to really fight the future frauds. So the fraudsters will be advancing, but the banks and the lenders, because they're so paralyzed, can't do anything about it. Wow. So I think that's a, a threat, a real threat that I see over the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that some of the privacy changes we're seeing come over from Europe and such. Mm -hmm. Also, the, the information that, you know, a lot of times we use in the fraud space mm -hmm. to fight fraud, geolocation, and some of the other kind of things that are, um, there's also a risk there around, you know, privacy is a great thing, but I do think it's going to change how we can use third parties also. So I actually, it's an interesting perspective. I didn't have that thought around breaches. Mm -hmm. But it does, if you combine that to some of, the, some of the privacy changes, which are good, right. but they are going to potentially hamper or hinder or what the right word is, but um, challenge how we can utilize third parties. Yeah, we're in a real, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I think we're in a real inflection point in financial services and just in privacy and security yeah. in general yeah. and how that shapes fraud. And security, I think, is going to be really interesting over the next couple of years. So tell me, um, you know, it's it's funny. I, I, I love the job I'm in. I, I'm traveling four days a week, and 
five days a week, different cities. But one of the things I love to do and I get to do is I get to go and spend time in both fraud shops, cyber cyber shops, and, and AML, BSA kind of organizations. And we spend a lot of time looking at these convergence areas of, mm-hmm. of fraud and cyber. And I, I've recently um, been to a couple fraud fusion centers and, and, and cyber fusion centers where you know fraud people and cyber people are trying to work together. And I think we talked about this investment and just cyber, but just any thoughts around like this convergence of the disciplines and any thoughts around that? I know. Yeah, I love the idea because too often you go in to a fraud shop and they'll have a threat metrics tool or an innovation tool and you say, oh, wow, that's a really great tool. And they say, well, the cybersecurity team handles that. We don't get to write the rules. And I look at the system and I'm like, wow, that's got so much capability for fraud. Why don't you, you, why don't, you both work together so you can have some fraud rules in that system or use the data out of those systems into your fraud strategies. So the concept of having a fusion team is, makes total sense. And it, I think it's, you have to do it. Yeah. I yeah. think it's mandatory. That's neat. Okay, so we talked about all the threats and how bad it's getting from yeah. it and like just what's coming. But like, you know, I go back to like, where's the hope? What, what, what do yeah. we have? Where are we going control-wise, prevention-wise? Like, what's the silver lining yeah. in all of this? You know, so so, that's a really good question. And something that gave me a lot of hope was something I heard about a year ago. And I think this is the future. And a bank, that was a pretty large bank, set up a project to install a platform that was solely devoted to using AI, machine learning, and rules to protect customers against scams. So this would be not related necessarily to fraud that they take a loss on, but using all these technologies to go to the root cause, which is let's stop the bad guys that are impacting our customers, that are calling in and doing romance scams, that are getting our customers to send them iTunes gift cards, that are calling our customers to get their passwords, and let's start analyzing it from a customer-centric perspective. To me, that gave me a lot of hope because now we're broadening our view of the problem, and the problem really is protecting the financial system whether that's the bank's own money or the customer's money, installing confidence and trust in the bank and making the banking system work completely. To me, that's the hope that's good. and that's the future. That's good, absolutely. There, there, um, I do think as we start leveraging everything we've done for the last, I mean, the fraud discipline's been around for a while, right? And we, we've definitely sharpened the blade in a lot of areas. Other areas we can uh, strengthen. And I think that as we start going after the source of the problem and mm-hmm. different aspects of the problem, I think there's a lot to be said, a lot of battleground to win, for sure. Yeah, um, we have a long way to go. We don't even know if you walk into a fraud department in the next 10 years, it may not be recognizable. And the types of cues and the types of things that they're doing will blow our minds, yeah, which yeah. is going to be pretty cool. Yeah, we get asked a lot of questions at PwC about automation mm-hmm. and how in helping organizations put in automation mm-hmm. and just reshaping the way we look at our processes and how going right to the customer to do <clears throat> authentication and verification, yeah. getting the customer more and more involved too when it, there yep. um, is an area I think that is definitely growing also. Yeah, I totally agree. And like I, th- I use auto lending as an example. Like I work with a lot of auto lenders and they their fraud processes are so paper-based. In this day and age, a lot of the lenders have to rely on faxed copies of driver's licenses and faxed copies of bank statements and pay stubs and copies of social security cards. That is not gonna exist in five years. 
everything you need from that customer can be done, not necessarily to the car dealer, but directly to the consumer on their cell phone. They can take a selfie. They can take a picture of their driver's license. They can opt in so you can get their bank statements. They can do everything direct to the consumer through that phone. And on top of that, validate that that phone belongs to the consumer. Yeah, yeah. So you do your identity checks, your document checks, your income validation, your cash flow analysis, all through the customer and on their phone. And you, and you do it in seconds and not days. Yeah, yeah. This is because we're strengthening so much of the third party fraud. You know, I talked a little bit in this, but then also offline about how <clears throat> scams and then first party fraud, where the customers are the fraudsters, like we're seeing bad guys now infiltrate a different way where they're coming in and saying, I'm good, Frank, I'm good right. at bank ABC, right. but now I'm going to be, you know, and so talk first party fraud for me. Yeah. You know. Okay. So first party fraud is kind of like my passion. I'd say internal fraud and then first party fraud. These are the things like for the last 30 years, I've just went on and on about. When I look at any bank and I look at a lender or any company, and from a consulting perspective, when I consult with them, they're saying, where's my fraud? And I look at where they're spending money versus where their fraud is. And inevitably, they're spending all their money on identity and authentication. And then when I look at their fraud losses, it has nothing to do with their investment. A lot of the, their fraud losses are occurring because it's not third parties coming in and stealing from them, but people that are pretending to be customers. Mm -hmm. People that are lying about, well, synthetic identity is a great example, right? They're giving you maybe parts mm -hmm. of their true identity. Mm -hmm. They're lying about their income. Mm -hmm. They're lying about where they work. They're um, getting the bank account with the intent to defraud you by being a mule, a money mule, or by getting a bunch of loans and defaulting. So from, our, from my perspective, 85% of a bank's real fraud problem is first-party fraud. 15% of their problem is third-party fraud. So if you want to make a big impact as a bank, focus on your first-party fraud because that's where you're gonna have the biggest impact. It's a much harder problem because there's no positive feedback loop. You're making assessments and judgments, but it's the bigger reward. That's good, you're right. It's because it's, it's showing up in credit losses, it's showing up as yeah. unidentified, and so it might not hit a lot of times the general ledger Right. That's fraud, marked fraud, but it's hitting overdrafts. It's hitting all these other areas that are um, that are hurting the bottom line of all these organizations. Yeah, and there's stats out there. FICO has a great stat. 20% of your charge-offs are first-party fraud. Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to improve your your credit scorecards to get you know 1% gain, why not use a fraud technique that can target 20% of your credit losses with a fraud tool, a fraud technology, and fraud experts? That's where I'd be trying to reduce my credit losses. It's a big bucket. Yeah, it is. I think um, as they become more, un as we uncover more fraud, it goes back to how we started the whole conversation of why fraud's a great profession to get in. Mm -hmm. We're not going in way anytime soon. I think this is where. Just starting. Yeah, yeah. Just starting. I know when we cr I created The Noble, um, you were one of the first people I called that said, hey, um, come join, be a part of it. And I remember right. conference calls we were having when we were dreaming about what The Noble could be. and mm -hmm. and we decided that one of our missions was, you know, how can we turn the financial crimes community from just being aware, but to action, right? Mm -hmm. And so I know you write a lot about this on Frank on Fraud. You've got a great blog. For those that um, aren't aware of it, go to frankonfraud.com. It's a fantastic resource for um, understanding latest threats and really being challenged with, um, um, you know, what's out there in the industry and what can you do about it. But I want to ask you, you know, so for the folks listening to this, um, and they're just curious, like, what can I do? 
You know, yeah. what, what would you suggest? Yeah, that's a good question. So I actually wrote about this, I, um, as you mentioned, I wrote an article because I kind of challenged myself, like what could I do personally and what could fraud analysts do and what could investigators or fraud managers do? And a lot of the human trafficking, a lot of the victims are being victimized through the financial system. So whether they're trafficking money or trafficking drugs or slavery, a lot of that's going to flow through. So you just got to go to those financial transactions and find them and try to file your SARS or try to, you know, contact the victims. But if you think about prepaid cards, for example, about $40 billion a year of illegal proceeds, whether it's from um, human trafficking to money laundering to financial crime is flowing through those prepaid cards. So if you have prepaid cards portfolios, you need some rules or some alerts that are going to flag suspicious activity. So, you know, some of the things that you can look for, you know, is looking for suspicious travel-related activity. Um, so if you see a sudden burst in travel, mm -hmm. a lot of times people that are being trafficked are being trafficked from international countries into the U.S. So if you see a lot of flights going back and forth that appear to be suspicious, um, flights for multiple names that are mm. female names or names that might be people that might be enslaved, um, looking for multiple hotel bookings, mm. you know, likewise that are coming right after flights, looking for large purchases at drugstores, looking for frequent late night ATM activity, Looking for things like elder abuse, right? If somebody's a very elderly person and their bank account starts to get drained mm -hmm. at the ATM, you yeah. know, if you're not yeah. going to be 90 years old and at the 7-Eleven ATM withdrawing $500 every night, but somebody is, and if you're not reporting that card lost or stolen, it's likely somebody's abusing that person. you got to write rules that are going to pick up on this type of behavior. And I think that's the number one thing that a fraud manager can do is use their systems whether or not you're going to lose money as the bank, just use them to start off with something small yeah. and start to identify them. Start to figure out, even if you, at first you're just identifying them, at least you start doing that. And then from there, start to figure out what you can do with it. Yeah. I think that's what you can do practically. Every good idea starts with something small that somebody just came up with. Yeah. And writing, you may come up with the killer rule that can identify you know, 80% of your elderly abuse or... 80% of your human trafficking problem, you might come up with that rule. So just start off with something small and see if you can do it. That's awesome. Hey, yeah. thank you for your time. Thank you. It has been a pure it. pleasure to have Absolutely. you as the Always first nice. interview interviewee. <laughs> My first interview as part of the Noble, and it's uh, it's you've been a joy, a pleasure to get to know for the last forever. I don't know, 10, 12, something like 2004. 15. It's been a while. 15 um, years. I, it's, I, uh, I love what you do. Thank you for who you are. And thank, thank you for you. Uh, joining the Noble and this uh, this crusade we're on. I'm looking forward to it. I'm yeah. excited about it. I'm excited about the people you're getting that I'm meeting and, and yeah. getting involved with. I'm excited about what it is going to become. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun for sure. So making the world a better place, I can't think of a better person to be doing that with. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, likewise. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. Once again, thanks for listening. And stay tuned for more from Ian Mitchell at Noble Discussions. Mm -hmm.